everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And we are going dolo today. Um, we're going to talk about Burns because dolo? we do- Dolo. Like solo, but with two people. Double. Oh. Dolo. Oh, okay. Yes. As it was in the beginning. As it was. As, as it once way, was. Way so way shall back. it be again. Way, way back in episode one. Go back to the way, way back to the before four times. So we're going to talk about Burns today. Um, this then the show's going to be super loose. Um <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> so, it, burns are something that come across in EMT and medic school pretty frequently. They're um, sort of what we call halo type of incidents. They're high acuity, low occurrence. And yeah. it's something that it's very important that we actually know how to treat because when you do actually see those patients, you have to know what to actually do. Yeah, um, and you get a really perfunctory kind of training in them like, okay, these are burns and here's the degrees and um, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's it, it pretty much comes down to like burns are bad. Burns are really bad. Burns and are bad. they are. Yeah, they, they, yeah, exactly. That's not, that's not even the debate. I mean, it's, it's like, a really catastrophic injury. Um Right. You know, I uh I remember listening to somebody, I'll have to attribute it to in the show notes, but it was a, a a long time ago podcast where it's like, you know, burns are unique in that, you know, anybody uh, any other type of injury and your body tries to live, burns are the only one where once they're burnt like a burn patient literally just just tries to die. Yeah, the body it, just says forget. The body's just like, eh, it's, yeah, it's been yeah, good, that's it's, been, it's been a good run. It's been a good run. <laughs> you know, I had, I had a couple good years. So, so yeah, so burns are something that we don't try practice on. And there's a lot of new stuff, honestly. Uh, a lot of what we thought we've learned, especially if you're a medic and you you know paramedic or an EMT, you've been around a while. Um, there's a lot that's new. Um, yeah, some this is going to shock you. The stuff you. that you learned in EMT <laughs> and medic school is wrong. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Since when? So let's go through the epidemiology of burns a little bit here. Um, this is coming out of the New England Journal of Medicine. This is in June of 2019. So overall, and, and some of the data is older, but it does still apply. Um, about 11 million people in 2004, it's estimated, were actually experienced a burn. Um, your risk of burns tends to increase with a lower socioeconomic status, and up to 90% of burns occur in low or middle income uh, countries. That's pretty surprising. So it, I, see, I don't know that it is. I don't know that, it, and because it says countries, but I think it can also extrapolate it to areas, and I'm not sure that it's that much of a surprise. I think the, I think the most common burn is probably a, like a steam or, or a water thermal burn. thermal injury burn or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know that a lot of like, like we're going to talk about chemical burns and electrical burns, but I think like how often have you heard the story? You know, you're in an urban area and a kid pulled hot oil down on top of them. Frequently, like that's that's a common. Th- I I'm sure or even, for, or for even anyone listening, I'm sure and, that they've had that as a test question. Or even in house fires in urban areas that you yeah. know you have multiple patients, multiple occupancies, um, you know it is something that you see. Yeah, socioeconomically, you know you do see a bigger preponderance of. Right, and I, and there's I'm sure there's a million factors that contribute to it, whether it's you know home safety or you know, the availability of insulation, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a million things that are I'm beyond sure. the scope of what we're going to talk about yeah, on the show it's... today. But so in 2016, uh, there was a total of 486,000 people who sought care for burns in the United States. Generally speaking, burns are small. 67% have occupied less than 10% of the total body surface area. We're going to get into that in a second. Um, and then you also had people who, you know, people are 40,000 patients who were hospitalized in 2016, 30,000 of them were admitted. There's 128 burn centers in the United States. So that's pretty much your data. Wow, um, only 128? Yeah. So, all right. You know, let's, that's talk, let's, let's talk about that for a second. So <clears throat> let's talk about the availability of burn centers, right? Where 
similar to trauma centers, burn centers are laid out by area and necessity. Um, there's right. there's different metrics that they use, but that's that's kind of the big part. Please don't come at me in the comments about how that's not how burn centers are laid out. I know, generally speaking, it's it's done in a similar vein. I think we're just trying to get the big point across. But the overriding point that we're trying to get across is that there are not a lot of burn centers in the United States. Correct. That's they, the, that's the overriding thing. Let's just yeah. for uh, you know to have in a place where. They, basically every street corner has a in a lot of cities has like a trauma center right. or a STEMI yep. center stroke center 128 nationwide that's pretty that's pretty amazing right and you have to know where they are sure you know and like we i know we know where ours is in yeah. our area um and it's the one it's about an hour and 20 minutes north of us right so that place tends to act as more of a retrieval or a, a retrieval or a receiving center than it yeah. does a, yeah, a primary hospital for, but we'll get for into burns, that. But we'll get into that so <clears throat> So we know that there, in 2016, uh, the American Burn Association reported 3,275 deaths related to burns and smoke inhalation, um, whereas 2,745 deaths resulted from residential fires, 310 from vehicle crash-related fires, and 220 from other causes. The estimated total number of deaths per year in all low- and middle-income countries is 180,000, and death rates, are incre- death rates increase uh, with, burn si- with burn size, depth, older age, and smoke inhalation. So most of the long-term sequela that you see from burns tends to involve mostly they're just the smoke inhalation right so the inflammation of the airways and all that that very rarely do you see like if a patient has if they're stuck inside a house and they experience you know third and fourth degree burns like they're they're not long for this world yeah i think you're probably right where airway the the damage to the airway and also the poisoning from the toxic gases um you know you if you you know it's too bad we don't have joe here but you know as a firefighter he could probably tell you that the the house fire now is completely different than a house fire you know 20 25 years ago just because of the amount of plastics the amount of uh, the type composite of wood, materials of oh yeah. god yeah yep. um all this stuff pumps a lot more um, toxic gases, and a lot of that's poisoning. You know, um, cyanides are actually one of the more commonly found toxic gases in a house fire. Um, so you've got this co-committant thing. You may have somebody who's pulled out of a house with a thermal injury, but they're also poisoned, and you have right. to be you have to be aware of that. So we're going to talk about that too. So. Um, you know, and that again, stuff that we didn't tell you in EMT and paramedic school. So, so let's talk about the different types of burns. Um, generally speaking, you have ther- just thermal injury, right? Which is usually that's the classic fire type of burn, right? When you're near the vicinity of a fire, when you're actually in a fire, when fire right. makes contact with you. Those are the classic burns that we tend to think about, right? First, second, third degree. There is a fourth degree burn that is. Involves subcutaneous it's tissue a, muscle. Yeah, it's, it's essentially it's you've made an eschar out of the skin. It's it's not fourth degree burns are not survivable. Is really what it comes down. Well, to the tissue's not burned. survivable. Yeah. You can have you can have yeah. an isolated fourth degree burn down yeah. through the muscle, and that's basically in the end that tissue is dead. It's never coming back, and it's probably a situation where that tissue is going to have to get excised. Yeah. Um, in the case of or an extremity, amputated. that might be an that might be an amputation. Right. Um, but there is a fourth degree. Uh, the AB, it is in the ABA um, Advanced Burn Life Support Manual. And uh, it just talks about when they talk about fourth degree burn, we're talking about completely underneath the skin, subcutaneous layers, muscle and bone. And it's destruction of those tissues. Correct. That's that's kind of the important part. So part of the reason that you probably weren't taught about fourth degree burns in EMT and medic school is because 
again, most of those people are Marabin from the beginning. Yeah, I would agree. So another thing to consider, too, is burns are not, they don't independently stay in one degree. Um, you have to consider them the burn almost like a penumbra, as we would consider it as a stroke. If you have a third-degree burn in the center of the penumbra, there's likely a second-degree burn outside of that, and then a first-degree burn outside of that. Right, and that's and that's where we can actually make a difference. Um, burns are progressive. Uh, the burn that you see at the scene is not going to be the burn that the burn center sees 48 hours from now or 72 hours. These injuries do progress, and what we do at the scene uh, has a has a big impact on whether that's going to progress to a more deeper burn, a more damaging burn, or a less damaging burn. Right, and the way that we have to talk about treating it is just the first thing that you have to do in any burn setting is you have to stop the burning process. So if you're at your home and you're like me and you burn your hand on the oven or the air fryer on at an, an upsetting amount of times, frankly, I, I do it. It happens to me too much. I'm not. Or if you have a corn baller. I, wow, <laughs> that was good. That was good. The real ones will understand the cornball reference. That's fun. I like that. It was outlawed. There might be a couple. There might be a couple around. floating around somewhere. Um, God. So, you know, if you're at your own home, you burn your finger, whatever. Run under cold water and stop the burning process, which is what you would do if you're by yourself. Now, if you're in the field. That's the same thing that has to happen. We still have to stop the burning process on these patients. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and take sterile water and dump it all over the patient. It's more knowing where the burn process is and getting them to a place that can actually stop that process. So you have to consider where wh what retrieval facility you're going to go to. Do you take them to a local hospital, a trauma center, a burn center? And frankly, it depends on what your receiving hospitals are capable of doing. You know, if there's a trauma center that's nearby and there's not a burn center, you might be better off going to a trauma center. If you have, there's, we know now that there's a, a center in Florida that has a burn ER. So if you have a burn ER, go to the burn ER. Yeah. But you actually have to look at the patient and determine what's wrong with them, almost independent of the burn, to figure out what place to take them to. Well, well yeah, you look at look at what, what you're dealing with. Is this just a situation where you're, you, you know, your, your typical... Um, you know, weekend warriors out uh, cutting the grass and he gets a burn fueling up the lawnmower because we didn't wait for it to cool down because who does? And, um, you know, you know, I like that you ask that question, assuming that I do <laughs> mow, mow the lawn or have an idea of how to. Do I, I, don't, I don't I don't <laughs> mow my lawn. I don't have a lawn anymore. So I'm really yeah, happy I'm not, about that. I'm not. But I'm not about that. So what we're talking about is a flash burn, a flame burn, direct impingement. Um, this can cause a, you know, partial thickness, um, a burn, generally what we call second degree. Uh, you'll see some first degree in there, depending on how close they were or how much, uh, how much time was in contact with the heated material. Um, you might see some isolated third degree injuries. So this is a guy, he, he hasn't fallen off anything. There's no other trauma. Um, we're not dealing with any other co-committant thing. Um, we're going to treat that differently than somebody who was trapped in a car post car crash. And now, uh, did have some fire, you know, had the car was on fire and they put the car fire out and now he has burns to his. Yeah. And he legs. also happens to be on fire, right? Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's, it's a different thing. Um, so, you know, let's talk about that. Um, generally the formula is burns plus trauma, go to a trauma center. Right. I think where the confusion comes in with, with people, you know, that we see in our world, uh, at our shop is what do you do with that isolated burn injury? 
you know, um, we, you know, we've had it drilled into our heads what a critical burn is. And, you know, we'll we'll put the ABA stuff up on the show notes. Um, it's www.ameriburn.org. Uh, um, and there are things things where, you know, there are criteria for burn center admission. And I think that's where throws off uh, clinicians, especially your EMTs and your, your newer paramedics, because you're like, I got to take them to a burn center. But we just said there's only 128 burn centers in, in the country. Yeah, well, right. And also, you have to be sure that the hospital will take them in the first place. That's true. You what know, if, if what if your burn what if the burn ICU that you take that patient to mm-hmm. is full? Yeah, exactly. Now what? Now there is a theory that if you have a burn center, you know that has that also has an emergency department, which is to say any hospital, um, you know, you can take them to that ER. And then they'll be in the same hospital as the burn center. But the problem with that is they might not meet that criteria or the ICU might be full or, you know, there's a there's a bunch of different problems that can come from taking a patient to the hospital that contains the burn center, but not necessarily the burn center itself. So I know I know we're talking around the subject and it's starting to get and I know you're probably like, all right, guys, get to a point. But here's here's where we're going to is let's let's take this burn injury. And, you know, there is no trauma involved. You know, obviously, if it's burns plus trauma, we're going to go to a trauma center. That makes sense. I think where the confusion comes in is the people who, you know, who have that, you know, were gassing up the lawnmower or got in a house fire and there wasn't a trauma. They didn't jump out the window. They were rescued. Um, you know, where do you take these people? And I think it's important to understand what needs to happen in the initial stages of the resuscitation. We have to think of it as a resuscitation process. And maybe that'll give us a better idea. So first thing... And just, just, just to clarify something real quick. What we're going to be talking about for the remainder of the show are going to be very high acuity burns. If you have someone who you know has poured scalding water on their arm and their forearm is burned, we're not suggesting that you rush them up to a burn center. No, we're talking about critical burns. Yes. We're talking about more than 20% body, uh, total body surface area. We're talking about burns to the hands. We're talking about burns to the face, airway, things like that. Uh, these are the big burns. Okay? Yeah, so we're, we're talking about the, the more significant ones. So, again, don't come at us saying, like, well, if I burn my finger, should I go to the... No, of course you shouldn't. No. <laughs> and stop asking silly questions. It, we, that's not what we're getting put at it, Put it under cold water. You'll be fine. <laughs> All right, so you have someone who's been inside, let's say, a burning house. Uh, we talked about that you have upper airway burns that are a problem. And one of the things that tends to happen when you have an upper airway burn is we know that you have cilia that moves stuff out of your lungs and trachea so that you can expectorate it. And what tends to happen is the cilia that's actually in your lungs, that's in the trachea that can help move things along, tends to get killed or, well, not necessarily killed, but immobilized by the soot. It's similar to smoking cigarettes. Right. Where you're not able to actually move the stuff out of your lungs. And that's really problematic for patients who have been in a burn or in a fire because you can have these people who are no longer able to clear their lungs and that's where you start getting extra sequela down the road where you have people who have pneumonias and things like that. Right. That's another thing we have to consider. And you get your typical shunt physiology or VQ, right. VQ mismatches. This is the stuff that causes nightmares down the road in the ICU or unvented patients. Yeah, and that's so those are the big things down the road. But for us pre-hospitally, we're the biggest thing we have to worry about is inflammation. Right. Now yeah. there's a whole inflammation cascade that I'm is I mean, if I hadn't had Oh, to, please regale us. Yeah, if I hadn't had to study it for the past six months, I would say it's interesting. It is on your first exposure, but um, no, no, it's not. <laughs> so uh for for those who want to look down the inflammation cascade, go nuts. You can look up, you know, Tumor necrosis factor alpha and uh, one and things like that. We, anyway, get it, we get it, Ed. You went to medical school. Hey, I'm still in medical school. I will have you know. Um, 
But even like, but even not as a not as a flex. I think it's important to know that there is actually an inflammation cascade that happens, right? You have a whole bunch of different chemokines that come out after your burn, and it actually reduces the size of your cells, um, your your muscle and tissue cells. So you actually have edema, so all that fluid comes out, sure. and that's where you see all those problems. And that's it why you have it decreases cardiac output. It does, and the reason that that happens is because you have this this it, what's called an insensible loss of volume. Right. When you go when you walk outside on a hot summer day, you experience this insensible loss. Right. You don't feel like you're sweating, but you absolutely are. And anyone that's walked through, you know, the streets of Manhattan or Philadelphia in July knows that feeling. Right. So you already have this insensible loss. And once you when you experience a burn, you might not see the patient losing fluid. And that's especially when you have something like a third degree burn where you have this kind of semi full thickness burn and you can't actually see any water beating off it, it's actually just evaporating once it gets to that part of the tissue. So that's where you're losing that, that volume. And we're going to talk about urine in, you know, input and output um, in the not-too-distant future. It's not something you're ever going to monitor pre-hospitally, but it's how hospitals actually monitor uh, their fluid intake. But Hey, talk about third spacing. Because so, we hear it a lot. I don't think anybody understands it. Uh, so essentially what third spacing comes down to is it's just fluid outside of the compartment that it's supposed to be in. Right, so it's, it's the easiest so, way to do it. So, so burn if, injury, you get the the tissue gets leaky because yeah. the cell the cell membranes are damaged from the heat, and the the fluid that would be in the interstitial mm-hmm. fluid starts leaking out into these spaces where the body can't use it. Right. So the classic, like blisters. Yeah. So the classic example with third spacing, ten, you see it a lot in uh, it, it's edema. Sure. It's it's distal sure. edema. So patients that have congestive heart failure, when you see their legs are all swollen, that's third spacing. That is the fluid and the plasma that's actually inside the cells that's leaking out into the um, the extracellular space, the interstitial space, and that's what's causing that edema. That happens a lot in in burns. And again, the the if you have a third degree burn, you don't have the option to third space, and that's where you essentially lose all that fluid. Right. So we have someone who's burned. Right. The first thing that for me, when I have someone who who is a potential burn patient. I'm looking to see if their voice is hoarse or not, because Definitely. that just that presentation, just walking out, be like, "Sir, ma'am, how are you feeling right now?" And they go, "I don't feel so great." Yeah, I I know yeah. that there's a potential airway compromise. For People that. call it a hot potato voice, like it feels yeah, like, like you've got a like, mouthful of hot, hot like mashed potatoes in your mouth, like, yeah. and you're like, "Oh god, you know, right?" Because you have the swelling of the tongue. You've got the swelling of the tongue. You've got that hoarseness. This is a problem. And, you know, a lot of times you'll be like, well, the burn's not that bad. It's only it only looks like they're they got it on their face. Only on their face. They're only burned. I am not. Listen, I am not calling out anybody and I'm certainly not going to say, you know, uh, you know, tell war stories. But I can tell you at least one time that somebody has said to me, he's not that bad. I don't think we need to. We don't, I don't think I need you on this person. And it's I only look, 4.5% and they literally, of their body. And they literally have no eyebrows and their face is red and swollen. And I'm going, Oh God, oh, this isn't oh no. good. Oh bad. Oh, this is not good. So, well, and that's, but that's another interesting thing where that's, I don't know that we consider as, as healthcare professionals, a lot of times the the long term effects of something like that, like someone who has sure. their face burned, that ruins your life. Uh, it does. You know, does. that's like that's that's no joke. That that's that's a thing. Like that screws up things. That screws up your ADLs. But, that screws up like your job prospects. Like it sure. actually it ruins your. It can ruin your personal economy. Right. Yeah, you know, because we are a very superficial society where, you know, a pretty face makes you money. Right. So so let's go back. So the first thing we want to look at is as clinicians is you want to look at that airway right. before you, anything. And we want to decide whether or not we're actually going to 
artificially maintain it ourselves or if they can maintain it or if they can do it themselves and And the answer to that question is if you have someone who yes just like everything else (laughs) it depends but generally speaking if you have a patient whose voice is hoarse as as they're leaving let's say the residence or whatever the business that was on fire i mean odds are they're going to be intubated because you already know that they have an inflamed airway and inflammation doesn't get better. It just gets worse. And there's people that are going to argue that, well, that's something that should be done in the hospital. Sure, they're wrong. I agree that they're wrong. <laughs> I think I, I think you need to consider the dynamicness of that airway. Okay. As th- that, that tissue is going to swell and you're dealing with small tolerances. Mm-hmm. Okay. Doing it, if you have the ability, if you you have the scope of practice and the protocols and the medical director and all that, blah, 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 that we've talked about for, you know, years on the show. Yeah. You really need to consider taking that airway quicker than letting it wait and see. Mm-hmm. Taking a wait and see approach in this is dangerous. Um, I don't think I have the experience of it. I think I'm a little bit better at, I, I think I'm a little bit better at intubating than I am at guessing who eventually won't need intubation yeah um and i think you if you have the ability you should especially with somebody that's showing you know if they've got if they're spitting up you know black soot if you look in their mouth and you see it looks red cherry red and swollen and it looks just nasty um you may want to get in there before um things get worse because that 8.0 tube you might be able to put into that strapping hundred kilo college student is we, rapidly going to become a seven. It's going to be a six, six a five. five. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're dealing with folks. So that, t- that tissue is going to swell fast. Um, you may find yourself in a position where you may have to do a crike. If you hold off yeah. too long, you might have a situation where you have an airway obstruction. You have to consider that, especially. And for EMTs, the biggest thing is, if you see them and they have facial burns or they have eyebrows singed or they have you know, have them stick out their tongue if it's black or it's red or it looks nasty if it just looks like ow that hurts yeah you definitely need to consider that they need ALS that they need they're going to definitely need pain management which we'll get into but that airway is probably going to have to be maintained sooner than later and you need to be moving towards people who can do that right and that's the other thing is that when you're in actually EMT school or medic school you're taught that you know your airway is your most important thing so you know it's weird to me that we're not actually I, that's not doesn't seem to be considered a lot of times when we see burn patients because I think we're worried more about the skin. Well, and yeah, and I think it's it's a bad situation. Again, you said it's a halo event, you know, yeah. high acuity, high acuity, low occurrence, occurrence. And I think we we truly never want to believe that things are that bad. You know, we always want to just like, and I think that's where we get where we get screwed up. If you think about for cardiac arrest, like I think they have a pulse, right? Nobody ever makes it binary. They're like, oh, no, they don't. I don't feel anything. Start compressions. It's like, maybe they do. Maybe I just don't feel it. You know? Right. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of extra things to consider with that. So the other thing that you have to talk about, you have to consider when we're going through these patients, right? We know that we have an airway compromise or a potential airway problem. You know, when we're looking at their actual lab values, this is where we start seeing problems too. We have to worry about what their carbon monoxide level is, if they've actually inhaled too much carbon monoxide or have they inhaled any carbon monoxide. And we have to consider the smoke and smoke related injury because smoke itself is actually, it's hotter than ambient air. So the way that you're going to see if someone has carbon monoxide poisoning, right? If, unless if you have a carboxyhemoglobin meter, that might actually work. Um, pulse oximetry, interestingly enough, is not an effective tool for determining this. Pulse oximetry is going to read the actual 
concentration of a chemical in hemoglobin, and typically what we're looking at is oxygen. The thing is, carbon monoxide has a higher affinity for hemoglobin than oxygen does. So you might actually have a patient who has experienced a fairly significant carbon monoxide poisoning, and their SpO2 might actually read as 100, because the fact is that all of their hemoglobin is bound by something. It's just not necessarily bound by oxygen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's something that we forget, you know, especially um, when we're dealing with a house fire, we look at the skin burns, we look at, oh my God. And, you know, you're going to need to provide high flow oxygen for these people. That's the cure right off the bat. For carbon monoxide, I think it takes, I think the half-life is four hours at room air for carbon, for carboxyhemoglobin to, um, for carboxyhemoglobin, it's sure. four yeah. hours. And on 100% oxygen, it's one hour. Um, interestingly enough, this is where people talk about hyperbaric chambers. Um, they're not really a thing anymore. Um, the ABA actually, I was interested reading the manual. Uh, they don't recommend it anymore. And I don't think there's a lot around anymore. I'm, I'm sure they're out there in specialty centers, but it just because the, the way that hyperbarics were supposed to work, I think they kind of, they kind of moved away from it. So once you actually get through your airway and your breathing, and then we move into our circulation, and what you're concerned about is, you know, this is where we talk about the rule of nines, and we're going to talk about the actual chart for burns as well. We have to kind of determine how much of their body has been burned, and we need to make sure that they're actually circulating, that they're not losing a lot of fluid, and then we have to administer fluid. Now, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to talk about the Parkland formula. Um, I'm also going to talk about the Brook formula, which is essentially a similar type of formula. Um, and if you're working pre-hospitally, odds are these are formulas that you might never have to use given the new guidelines, which I think is interesting to a lot of people who haven't taken a burn class in the recent past. Yeah, there's tons of formulas out there. Uh, I know the military is using rule of tens, which is kind of interesting we can talk about. Parkland has changed um, multiple times during my career. Um but the big thing is, is the thing to remember is we can over resuscitate a burn. We can under resuscitate a burn. And we used to think that both were bad, but it technically um, there's some there's a study now that shows that actually people did better with less resuscitation pre-hospitally. So we're going to look we're going to look at that. Um, let's go over the formulas. Because I think they're confusing, and I, I'm interested in reading for you know the what ABLS is saying now, which is kind of cool. Right. So the Parkland formula essentially comes down to it's, and, and this is what they're kind of advertising you know now. Um, Parkland comes down to four mLs per kilogram uh, and the percentage of total body surface area burned. So it's four mLs per kilogram. And yeah, that then, was the original one. Yeah, and then that gets multiplied, and then that's that's changed from two to it's went from four to two to four to one to four, but that's that's generally what they're looking for. And ideally, the idea is to get that amount of fluid into them. Um, it, within the first 24 hours and then you're going to take that divide whatever that total is divide that by two and get that into them uh over the next uh 16 hours right um the thing with parkland though is that we're not going to be with the patient for 24 hours at least i hope not right um and it comes down to you know what can we actually do in the field to treat them and the, we also way overestimate burn size absolutely and just and just for for the interest of completeness the brook formula is two mls per kilogram times the percentage of total body surface area burn it's literally the parkland formula cut in half cut it's the same thing um you may have heard the heard the brook formula be referred to as the modified parkland right because so 
so the the point to take home is one to four mls per kilogram times a percentage <laughs> total. <by. laughs> yeah. that's it that's that's what it is because sometimes in medicine uh we know what we're talking about but most of the time we don't so yeah. that sounds fun but the the big thing too is remember uh, and this is what's interesting about this is that you know this is really hard to do in a stressful situation this is and especially you know you and i work in work in places where we're pretty lucky we have pumps we have all sorts of avenues to give fluid very very accurately we have calculators uh that we have in the vehicles with us that can actually give us that particular formula um some places don't have this no not at all and i think one of the important things to remember is that even though uh, during your time, if you're a student listening to this, you're going to be tested on Parkland. It's going to come up. Absolutely. They're going to give you a scenario where you have an adult or a kid who has a burn to X, Y, and Z. Yeah. You're going to have to calculate the burn percentage, and then you're going to have to figure out how much fluid to give them in the first 24 hours right. and over the next 16. Stuff that you'll never do, and that's really fun for you because the American Burn, American burn Life Support suggests giving 500 mLs of lactated ringers in the acute phase. Yeah, that was that's what I, I, I found to be really interesting, and this is in the 2018 ABLS Provider Manual, that they're talking about in pre-hospital and early hospital settings, they actually are recommending, based on the patient's age, an initial fluid rate as a starting point. So if you're 14 years old and, old, years old and older, so that's your typical adult, they say start at 500 mLs of lactated ringers per hour. Uh, under 13 to about six years old is 250 an hour and younger than five years old is 125, um, 125 milliliters an hour. Um, I got to admit for your initial resuscitation or being in the back of an ambulance going to a hospital, that's a really easy way to set this up. And, you know, it seems to be, it seems to make some sense and they have some scientific background behind it. So maybe we don't need to learn all this stuff. Yeah, and the, the fluid resuscitation part can be very difficult, especially in children. And now, this is my segue to our new segment that we're going to have on this show. Um, from now, uh, for, the, for the foreseeable future, uh, the Overrun is happy to have uh, Pediatric Pearls that'll be hosted by uh, Dr. Peter Antevi. Um, he's going to come on and give us little uh, tips and tidbits about how to treat kids better, because uh, we're all bad at it. So we'll throw it over to Dr. Antevi, and we'll come back on the other side. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Peter Antevi with another Pediatric Pearl. And today I wanted to talk about pediatric burns. As an EMS medical director, I think there's some very important things to remember. Number one, make a good assessment. If this kid's coming out of a house fire and they have airway issues, they have the singed hair, they have the soot in their airway, and you're hearing strider, you know you cannot waste any time. That kid has to have their airway taken care of. In my agencies, we RSI. had some great outcomes with that. Next, after the airway is taken care of, is of course circulation. Many of us hear about this Parkland formulas and all these other formulas, but re in reality, in my systems, I want the fluids to start off normal saline, 20 cc's per kilo, make it simple, and get the fluids taken care of. And again, this is not on all children. These are on children who have an increased percentage of burn. Most children under the age of five will have the simple scald burn, right? They pour soup on their chest and so forth. Those kids are in excruciating pain. And the one thing I hate is when people do not address the pain of this child. So I'm a big fan of fentanyl, intranasal, intramuscular IV, go for it. If that's not working, we move to ketamine, very simple. 
intramuscular, intranasal, or, intra, or intravenous. Now, you have to have that in your protocol. You have to know what you're doing. You have to have the right concentration. And of course, the pediatric dosing is important, but it's pain control, pain control, pain control. Um, and then when I get to the ED, I'll give them more pain control because I'll have to debride them and actually clean them up and do all the other things. So it's ABC and pain control. Make sure you remember that. Again, this has been Dr. P Peter Antevi with a pediatric pearl. And thanks to Dr. Antevi for that. So let's get back to how we actually calculate the burns on here. With adults, <clears throat> the biggest thing, you know, the, obviously the torso is going to be the longest or the biggest part of the body, right? That's 18% on both the anterior and posterior aspects. Um, and that's probably where you're going to see most burns, right? Now, it's important to remember that it's 18% in the anterior and posterior aspect, but it, that doesn't mean that a burn on the torso is an 18% burn. burn. Right. If you have someone who's just burned like in the actual sternal area, that might only be two or three percent. That's where you start getting into the sure. Palmer method, which is where you would take the patient's palm, you take the patient's palm, you take the patient's palm, <laughs> you take the patient's palm. <laughs> and the patient's which, whose palm? The patient's palm. Okay. Uh, and that will account for approximately one percent of their total body surface area, and you can kind of calculate it that way. Um, and, I have and it's important to remember too that this only talks about you're only counting second degree and greater. Now, we did talk about in the beginning, you said, well, you said burns progress. I did. But and at they the do. Time, and they do. But at the time we're calculating, it's basically second degree or better. So if you see blisters, that's fine. If it's just reddened skin, that doesn't count. Yep. Um, you're going to have, again, you're going to have that mixture of thermal injury. Don't let it throw you off. Um, because what happens is we overestimate areas. And it leads to over-resuscitation. And over-resuscitation of a burn patient is bad because they're already third spacing. They already have edema. The, the fluid contributes to edema. There's things called, there's something called abdominal compartment syndrome that can get from over-fluid resuscitation. Believe it or not, you can make people a lot sicker by floating them full of fluids. Well, right. And we already talked about how you can't necessarily retain fluid in your vascular space after a burn. So it makes sense of giving them too right. much fluid. Now, it is important to rehydrate them. Again, we talked sure. about that insensible loss, and we're not trying to take away from that. But, you know, it, summertime is coming up, and it is possible to get fairly deep burns just from the sun. And, you know, we're, we're at the shore. Especially we're, kids. Yeah, we're in an area. So this is where we talk about, like, make sure you wear your sunscreen. But, um, but it is important that you might have a patient who has just been sitting in the sun all day and has actually been burned. They might not know about it until well after they get home. You know, if you have someone who's laying out on the beach and they're kind of prone on the ground, you know, tanning their back, they may develop second degree burns and they won't know about it until they're actually back home. So now we've gone through, you know, how your patient develops a burn, how we manage their airway, how we're going to fluid resuscitate them. We want to talk about other points of management. Now, this is where we're going to I hate being like, ooh, controversy alert. Um, but this is where I'm going to kind of disagree with some of the stuff that is in uh, more of the uh, we'll call them the formal programs. Okay. Um, doing part two, a lot of them still recommend morphine for pain management. Um, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's incorrect because it's 2021 and we don't have to treat people like it's the 1980s anymore. I, I think, I think you're right. Um, I think morphine is something that everybody's very comfortable with. Uh, I don't discount that. I think it's kind of predictable. 
Uh, that's why I think you think you see places still use it. Right. But it's, but, um, but, but, it's, but is it's it not, better though. for the patient? But it is, but it isn't predictable though. That's the problem. If you have someone who, okay. ha- who has, this, if you have someone who has this burn, right. And they have these losses and with these third spacing we're worried about, and sure. we're worried about their loss of preload because they've already lost enough fluid, okay. giving them morphine, which is something that's going to further reduce their preload is like given the available options, that's less than ideal. Given available options, yes. If all listen, if you work in a place that all you have is morphine for pain control, yeah, go nuts. Then, then that's what you yeah. have to do, because these people need opioid pain management. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that you hold the morphine and give them a piece of shoe leather to chew on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, but I'm saying like if you if, can sing sea shanties as they saw through the. Oh my god! <laughs> it's like Master and Commander. Yeah, exactly. Gross. Here, you're gonna drink this shot of whiskey. And just chew on this bit of wood for a while. All right. But, you know, I we have fentanyl. We have ketamine. We have, like... Yeah, I, 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 think, like, I think fentanyl is great. It's a um, it's much more uh, cardio-neutral than morphine is. Um, you, have le- you don't have the histamine release issues, so you don't have that blood pressure issue. Um, it's more potent. Um, you can repeat dose it pretty effectively. Yeah. Um, and that's just a clinical pearl for, like, the new medics out there. Um, 50 of fentanyl is not going to touch your, no. ba- your big burn patient. No, no. These people, the one thing that, and Ed'll jump in on this, but remember that burns are hypermetabolic states. Okay. These patients will drink up your narcotics. Um, this is not somebody you're going to jump in a truck with a hundred microgram vial of fentanyl for a 25 minute transport and go, yeah, I'm good. You are not, you may not have narcotics left by the time you get to the hospital. Right. Um, yeah. I, I actually, in the, in the old days, I actually gave like 30 milligrams of morphine and people were like, <gasps> and the guy was still awake and it didn't take the edge off. I bet. Like, and that was 30 milligrams yep. of morphine. Yeah. And, well, it's, the, you know, it, so that's, that's something to remember. And it's just that hyper metabolic state. Right. Um, we're lucky. We have a, you know, our shops, we have fentanyl. We also have ketamine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing wrong with mixing, you know, as long as you got medical control and you got your doc on board with it, you know, ketamine plus fentanyl is a really good combination here. Yeah, what do you watch, think? watch their pressure, watch their heart rate. And give them drugs that will actually, you know, help them. Like I, I'm not, I'm not. Again, if if they have, if morphine's your only option, fine, whatever. It, like, like give it. And some places have that, and we're sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's fine. It's like it's like, like making making the same argument. It's like, well, I guess if droperidol is the only thing you have, go nuts. Like it's it, it's droperidol is like, back and it's better than ever, Ed. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, it's it it it's the something is better than nothing type of thought process but ketamine and fentanyl are probably better pain management agents and when we're talking about the patient being hypermetabolic like when you think about what's called nociception which is the the actual perception in your brain of pain right your body especially your skin are full of nociceptors and you have to consider like have you like you know when you when you when you poke yourself with a pin Right. Yeah. Like that's a painful occurrence. Right. Right. And you poke yourself at the tip of your finger with a, with a pin or or a lancet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You get like that hyperemia. You get all that swelling and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, and that hurts. And now just imagine that that's happened everywhere, <laughs> all the all places. the all the time. It just it's all all and pain all the time. Yeah. It's the worst radio station from the sixties. All pain all the time. <laughs> w p a i n. So when you have these patients that are actually this injured, you have to keep in mind how you're 
what you're doing for them. Right. So you might give them four, five, six hundred of fentanyl. You might give them two, three hundred of ketamine, and they might stay awake. Yeah. You know, you have this, uh, obviously, if you're in pain, you're hypersympathetic because your heart rate has come up and you actually are trying to get rid of whatever pathogen has put you in pain. Right. Right. So you're already hypersympathetic just from that. And the actual burn process, because it's it has this, you know, the, the thermal reaction of it actually makes you hypermetabolic as well. So you burn off things like it, it. This is all this is stuff that makes sense. And this is like this should be first week biochemistry in medical school. You know, well, we can go off on that. Um, the other thing, too, is also this is for your critical care transport people, uh, paramedics, nurses. Um, if you're transporting somebody to this burn center, OK, realize, especially if they're intubated, you're going to need more post intubation medication. Yeah. You are going to need to continue your sedation, your pain uh, package, because you are these people will wake up. Listen, pain, and pain. You don't want them your, to wake up pain in your patients exists independent of your comfort if you have a patient oh that's good right if you have a patient who is unconscious or if they're intubated or whatever just because they're not moving and they're not talking and you as a provider are comfortable watching that patient and writing your chart does not mean that they're not experiencing pain and to ignore that is it, it's a, it's a it's I'm not going to say it's malpractice, but it's certainly it's abandoning your it's responsibility. It's just crappy care. Yeah, it's lazy care. Right, and also like not for nothing. If I've gotten burned, I want you to snow the shit out of me. I want to sleep forever. I I ra- never. Yeah, like, I'd rather just go to bed like, for a couple. Knock weeks. me yep. out. Wake yep. me up three weeks later. Yeah. And explain how skin grafting works to me. That's it. I don't want, yeah. you know, that's what I want. And I'm on the record now saying it. <laughs> so in the event I get burned, you can play this episode. Now, just just understand this and and get get it into your comfort zone that you're going to have to give decent amount of meds. Um, two milligrams of morphine is not going to touch your patient with a 20% second degree burn or, you know, burns to both arms or you're going to, you're just going to, it's, it's not good. So... Now that we've beaten that to death, um, let's talk about fluids. What fluid? Okay, so the record because we're going to have a fight. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think we are. So the recommended fluid in burns is uh, lactated ringers. ABA says lactated ringers, and I don't right. think that's a bad choice. I I'm I don't necessarily think that it's a bad choice. I think it's another one of those things where the options we have available to us. It, this is where we're at. Okay. So part of the reason that I I think that is, and this is. This is something that we're going to give uh, to to the EMT and medic students who are going to have a preceptor who's going to try and ask you a question and try and like pimp you while you're actually oh, on the truck. Gross. Hey, listen, you know that they're out there. So um, this is coming out of a retrospective study that was done in Colombia by uh, Naberta Navarrete, and this is hyperkalemia in electrical burns. Um, I can actually hear like experienced medics roll their eyes when I say hyperkalemia. Like, I know, I know where this is going. So, but, okay, so this is the problem, essentially, right? There's a small percentage of patients to the tune of about 1.5% that are hyperkalemic from their burn, right? right? So giving Ringer's lactate, which has about 4 milliequivalents per liter of potassium in it, when you give that drug or drug, the, the fluid, you can actually make them more hyperkalemic, which can cause further problems. I get now, it. I now, get it. Now, but now, is that enough to change care? No, I don't think so. Right. I don't know that saline is going to be any better. It's you're, one tenth of a K rider. K rider is yeah. forty mil equivalents. No, right? right. So that's but you're so you're losing those electrolytes when you actually lose that fluid from the burn. So right. I'm I'm on board with giving ringers. I'm saying you have to watch 
what's going to happen. I with think that they're patient. more worried. I, I think they're more worried about the chloride and the hyperchloremic yeah. acidosis. I think they think that that's more dangerous than the potential of the, 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 the potassium. Mm-hmm. And if they get into the hospital and they do it, they're going to do they're going to do electrolytes. And if their K is high, you know, they're going to give them calcium. Yeah. Insulin. And, and so and, and I'm on board. So it's doable. You know yes, what I mean? Like, absolutely. And I I'm, can fix that. Right. And I'm 100 percent on board and supportive of giving it provided that you're actually giving the 500 mLs that the ABA recommends. The problem that I have with it is that there are providers out there who are just going to keep flying fluid into this, into these patients. And suddenly 500 mLs becomes 2000. But our listeners won't do that. They won't because they've learned to hashtag do better. See what I did there? (laughs) Product placement. All right. So those are the big things with burns. And now there's, there's a, there's a bunch of other little stuff that we can talk about that I, we kind of think is important with the burns. Um, As far as the actual dressing of the burns is concerned, there, this is something that every five years there seems to be a new stupid debate over it. And I do mean stupid. This is a stupid argument. And we it seem is. to get into it all the time. Um, but hey, it's medicine. Stupid arguments are half the fun. We are going to dress a burn with a dry sterile dressing, which is something that I we have beaten that into students' heads forever. Yes. And yet still... And dry. Um, at, dry. Do dry, not... Do not... Dry as, as good as it might make this patient feel... Don't do what I've seen in cases where you've had patients in the back of an ambulance so with with saline soaked uh, sheets and they're actually shivering because they're they're literally cold. Okay, first of all, hypothermia, really bad for these patients. Um, Also talking about the the vasoconstriction that goes to the burn injury. Remember, we talked about that zone of injury. We talked about that zone of stasis where there's a part of that tissue that could survive or not survive. And by by causing that vasoconstriction, by making it by putting those cold sheets on, you're cutting off blood flow to tissue that could survive. Well, and again, let's not forget that a sheet isn't fucking sterile. I know. I understand that. But. Clean is, ABA says clean is okay, and I'm kind of okay with that. Sure, uh, yeah, fine. But the whole the whole purpose of this is to reduce the amount of pathogens that you're exposing to the patient to. Agreed. Right. So a dry sterile dressing would be a burn sheet or whatever else that you have that's actually commercially packaged that has been cleaned before you get to that. And that's optimal. Yes. And I'm not if you only have again similar to morphine. If you only have a dry sheet available to Perfect. you, okay, that's better. That'll than work. Nothing. Better than nothing. Right. You know what? Did you see? Um, have you seen some places using uh, Saran wrap? Or a plastic kitchen film? Yeah. I, I it's know. sterile. No, it's not. It's got to be sterile for food prep. It's not, uh, Once you break the seal, it's not, obviously. Well, <laughs> but yes, okay, yeah. I mean, yeah, and right. it retains heat. Right. It's non-stick. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not, I, yeah, it's an alternative that's, it's that's not, been used. It's not a bad choice. No, I mean, some I, people Some people do like that. Yeah, I I tend to still be of the mind that I I don't think that I I worry that saying that is going to get people to use like their household saran wrap, and that's yeah, okay. and that's yeah, that's where point. it's going to get into yeah, problems. Yeah, don't. Like, do that. <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah. I I get it. If you if you have a a sterile type right. of wrap, somebody a, a somebody will because somebody will yeah I know what you're worried about. Like, you know, somebody will, like, somebody will wrap a facial burn with saran wrap and. <laughs> We'll be doing a what the actual episode on that. Great. Thanks, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Was he was he playing mummy? Is that what he was doing? (laughs) 
<laughs> it's something that I've read. It's something I've seen or, you know, discussed. It seems to have some merit. There's not a lot of science on it. It's totally off label. You're going to have to yeah, talk it's, to your Yeah, it's an anecdotal director. thing. And like, and on again, it's probably fine provided, you know, it's it's clean. Sure. You know, then it, then it's probably fine. But, but remember, they're all going to get debrided. They're all going to get right. into the tank and the burn ICU or the burn ER, and they're going to get washed down. And I don't know that it's a big yes, but, dramatic thing. But that being said, please don't let it turn into, like, it doesn't matter what we use because they're going to get washed and debrided once they actually get no, to no, the No, no, no. You know that. what I mean? If you have one of these commercial burn dressings or commercial burn sheets, that's what you use. Just use those, yeah. And just and just, they're the best things. They're cheap. They're effective. They're 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 sterile. You're gonna probably the big thing is cover them up. Number one for heat retention. Yep. Number two, um, it's like it's like having a you know when your skin's burned off, you you have exposed nerve endings. Yeah. You don't Imagine you don't like have a broken, the thing covering have, you right, anymore. Ever ever have a broken tooth? Yep. Air over the nerves. Feels I was, really good. I was a hockey player, it? son. Yeah, yeah. I've, had, yeah. I've had one or two. So that's what we're trying to do there, right? So you want to, and again, it's going to hurt them, which is why we get back to the pain management thing. Now, why a dry sterile dressing and not a wet sterile dressing? Um, you may feel the impetus to moisturize the dressing before you actually put it on the patient, and this is why that's a bad idea. Wet environments, which is something again that we should have you should have learned in EMT or medic school, bacteria and pathogens live and thrive in dark, moist environments. And if you are putting a moist dressing on a patient, you are creating an environment that is both dark and moist, and that's going to increase their chances for infection. Now, has it, they, there's not been a lot of data that, I've, that we've been able to find that actually shows that there's a correlation between that, but that's really the thought process, is that if you take water that is non-sterile water, and put that onto a dressing, and then you put that onto the burn, then you're actually going to introduce more pathogens into the burn, which is going to cause pro more problems downstream for the patient. So that's why we use dry sterile dressings. And it will be uncomfortable once they get to the burn center, mm -hmm. right? They're going to have to tear it off. It's going to stick. But you know what? That's that's a small thing if they're not going to get, you know, a a rare bug that they can't actually treat, you know? Right. And as and you know, and it, it can be little things. Like that's these are patients that could have a, a big systemic burn, and a staph infection could kill them, and sometimes does. And yeah, exactly. So that's that's part of the reason that you actually have to watch what you're covering the patient with. Fair enough. Okay, so I think we covered a lot. Um, we talked about some of the controversies. Um, again, uh, we'll put a lot of these in the show notes. Uh, we'll link to the American Burn Association. Um, some of the studies that we were looking at. Um, again, just a just a quick note before we cut out. In in case if, if people have questions about how to treat pregnant patients with burns, it's no differently. You're treating the mother as the ma patient. Maternal and, resuscitation is fetal yeah. resuscitation. Yeah, we're we're that's we're just in those settings. We're essentially just pretending as if the kid doesn't exist. Yep. So we have covered a lot of stuff today. Um, thanks again to Peter and Tevi for coming on to the show uh, for our regular segment. And for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And we will talk to you next time. <laughs>